Uh, turn to Luke chapter 7, if you will. Luke chapter 7, as we continue in our series in the book of Luke, our certain salvation. And we have a lot to cover today. So as you make your way to Luke chapter 7, go to verse 18. Verse 18, and then please stand with me as a way to honor the reading of God's word today. Let's stand. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. And we're going to go down to verse 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the songs that we sang this morning of you sending your Son to save us. Lord, may we this Christmas season come adore him afresh and anew. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, open the eyes of our heart to see what you have for us in your word this morning. Um, God, I pray that you would teach us and that we would go from this place um, not merely um, inspired uh, or filled with warm fuzzies, but that we would go from this place challenged, convicted, um, renewed in our mission to uh, make disciples of all nations. And Lord, that this would be our mission this Christmas, that we would see beyond um, some of the things that are right in front of our faces and that we would see to deeper needs of those around us. Lord, bless the uh, prep for the Living Nativity this week. Thank you for all of the help yesterday and the impact on our neighborhood. Uh, God, we pray pray that you continue to do that and uh, guide my words now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, and as you're seated, why don't you keep your finger there in Luke chapter 7, but just flip a few pages back to Luke chapter 1, where we started several months ago, 
in our series, Our Certain Salvation. And I want to remind you of what Luke's doing. This series is going to take us a year and a half at least. And there is the problem sometimes of taking so long to forget where we've been. And so we need to um, continually remind ourselves what is happening in this book and why is it being stated like this. In fact, I would encourage you to continually read back through the book of Luke to to get caught up. Um, You can go on our website or subscribe at iTunes to our podcast and listen to the messages that you may have missed so that we can continue to learn together from the gospel of Luke. But Luke, Dr. Luke, told us at the beginning of his gospel why he wrote what he wrote, which would inform us why he included what he included and why perhaps he excluded what he excluded compared to Matthew and Mark and John. And so we get to see, again, why Luke is putting things in here that he has put in here, why he has included the stories that he has included, why he has commented on them the way that he has. So Luke one one, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Boy, that's a mouthful. A lot of people have tried to write about Jesus, and he's going to try too. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, just like those who were there, just like those who have taught about what happened, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have what? Certainty. Concerning the things you have been taught. Luke wrote this to Theophilus, probably a Gentile, probably a Greek, probably a prominent member of society, to give him certainty. This man was not present in Jesus' ministry. And so as he reads about the accounts of Jesus' ministry, Luke works to help him have certainty. And of course, that would extend to us as well. And so perhaps uh, what we want to dwell on this morning is the certainty that we should have concerning the Lord. Now, that does not mean that we're all at the same level of certainty, does it? There are levels of certainty, levels of doubt, and we even see that today in our passage. But let's remember that this is what Luke is doing in compiling this gospel. This is why he has put the stories in the order that he has and why he has included these things. So, go back to Luke chapter 7. We have come off several stories of Jesus healing. Uh, He healed a centurion servant from a distance. He just um, spoke the word and the the centurion servant at a distance was healed. Uh, Pastor Ron preached on this last week and then we also saw Jesus walk up to a funeral procession and raise the dead man from the dead right in front of his widow mother and the crowd. Can you imagine that? And right before this account was the sermon on the plain or the sermon on the mount um, that Jesus teaches about what the kingdom of God was really looking like. When we get to verse 18 of chapter 7, we get to a place that's kind of like a little pause in the narrative. Uh, We're going to have some healing stories after this narrative and then start Jesus' parables. But here we kind of have a flashback as we run into a guy that we met in the beginning of the book, and that is John the Baptist. So as you look at verse 18, you'll see that we now shift to John and Jesus. And really, what this passage is about is clarifying the roles and ministries of John and Jesus, both to each other and to the people they were trying to reach. And so the first thing that we see is point number one, Jesus is the promised one because his actions fulfilled prophecy. 
Jesus is the promised one because his actions fulfilled prophecy. We have seen gathering resistance to Jesus as we've gone through the book of Luke from the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers. They do not like what they see this Galilean rabbi doing, and so the resistance has begun to mount. We have seen outright resistance to Jesus. And now we run into a different issue. Look at verse 18. The disciples of John tell John what's happening with Jesus. Well, why does John need an update? Well, if you look back in chapter 3, the last thing we heard about John is that he has been put in jail. He's been put in prison by Herod Antipas, the uh, ruler in the region. And uh, the book of Luke doesn't really explain this, but we know from the Jewish historian Josephus that John the Baptist was imprisoned across the Jordan at one of Herod's fortress palaces, Machaerus. This was enough for Herod to go and seize John the Baptist and put him in prison. Uh, This is Machaerus today in present-day Jordan, um, and you can even still see uh, that Herod turned the, the little hill here into his own fortress. If we had more time, you could see even the leftover aqueduct that's still there. You can see some of the walls that protected this place. Um, Herod Antipas is the ruler in the time of Jesus, but his father, Herod the Great, was a little bit paranoid and built lots and lots of fortresses, places he could escape to. This being one of them, as you can see, it's a lovely place. Palm trees, lots of beautiful things. Oh, wait, nope, it's, it's wilderness. Um, this is a place where you can see anyone approaching you, anyone attacking you. Um, and so this is a, a wonderful place to build um, a fortress. This is the traditional spot of John the Baptist's prison. We don't know that for sure, but it seems to have been used um, for various purposes. Uh, there's a cave there. cave's a great place to throw a guy you don't want to get out and then station some soldiers um, outside. John was put here not because... He had violated any of the laws of the land, but because he had accused Herod Antipas of violating the laws of the land. And when kings don't like these things, they throw people into prison. The Gospel of Mark gives us a little bit more reason. He says that John the Baptist was in prison because John the Baptist had dared to speak out against Herod Antipas, who had taken his brother Herod Philip's wife for himself. Her name's Herodias. So we got Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and Herodias, and it's a mess. Dad's Herod the Great. It's all really hard. If you have a study Bible, you would be very helped to find that family tree. But Herodias is taken from Philip, and Antipas takes her for his own wife. And John the Baptist, being of the priestly line and knowing the scriptures, could very easily recall that Leviticus 20, verse 21 says, If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. This is just a blatant violation of a very clear scripture. John raised his voice. John said, Antipas, you can't do this. Herod said, watch me. Oh yeah, you're going to prison. And so this is the setting of John's sending of his disciples, as we'll see here. So the disciples of John need to go report to John in prison all that Jesus is doing. Because John the Baptist baptized Jesus, right? He, he was the forerunner. He was the one who was supposedly preparing the way. And now as John languishes in a wilderness prison, he sends his disciples to the Lord with a message. In verse 19, the message is this. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for 
another. I don't know what you think when you read that, but that's not, that does not sound like astounding confidence. When I read it, I hear one word, doubt. John had doubts, which is an astounding statement. John the Baptist had doubts. John the Baptist, who put Jesus in the Jordan River, brought him up. The clouds parted, thunderous voice from the sky. Holy Spirit, like a dove, arrested above Jesus. And John the Baptist has doubts. That should be very encouraging for us. A man who was, by the way, he's also his cousin, right? (laughs) He's Jesus' cousin. A man that saw this, that experienced this, is still having doubts. John does not necessarily understand what's going on. John said there was one coming after him who would free them. One who would come after him who was more mighty than John, who was powerful. And now as we've seen Jesus' miracles, they're really powerful, but they're happening out in the country. And there's not a lot of political revolution going on, which is what many Jews were hoping for. In fact, it seemed like Jesus avoided much Roman contact at all. And the only contact we've seen is a kindly centurion who Jesus heals his servant. No, Jesus undermined, kill his servant, kill the centurion, let's overthrow the Romans. Perhaps John did not see clearly what Jesus was going to be doing. Perhaps John languishing in prison says, hey, Jesus, I've heard that you're going to set the captives free. I'm in prison. Set this captive free. What am I doing here? I'm just doing what I was born to do. Perhaps John is extra excited because he hears that Jesus has raised someone from the dead. That's not something you see every day. This is a helpful thing for us to consider. It's Christmas. We're celebrating the birth of a baby who has no human father. That doesn't happen. That sounds doubtful to me. Christmas actually is is a time where doubts can arise from many quarters because the entire story that it's predicated on is miraculous. And we don't believe in miracles, do we? So listen, as we see doubts here, I want it to be very clear that if John the Baptist had doubts, it is not, uh, it is not implied here that John the Baptist is done. He's out. Forget it. Because doubt is not necessarily unbelief. You know, we call Thomas, the disciple Thomas, later on in the book of John, we call him Doubting Thomas. I went back and read it for myself, and it's not that John was doubting. John didn't believe. So it might be better to call him disbelieving Thomas for a time because then he believes. But doubt is not disbelief. Moses doubted. Elijah doubted. In fact, they both doubted at Mount Sinai in the same region. We see doubt coming from powerful figures in the Bible. John was understandably human and he was confused. Are you the one... Who is to come or shall we look for another? John almost misses it. In fact, one of the commentators I read this week said, this could be the most remarkable question in all the Gospels. We understand the disciples, um, they're just normal guys and we're used to them kind of being dunderheads in the Gospels. But man, John the Baptist? Jesus' cousin? 
A man who himself was born under miraculous circumstances. When we have doubts about God's existence, we, us, not them out there, we, when we have doubts about God's existence, or we have doubts about the Bible's claim of there being only one way to the Father, or how one man could save billions, we don't need to flail about in some relativism. We need to return to the reliable, proven, sure word of God. And that's what Jesus is going to point John to. Look at John, look at Jesus' answer to John. They arrive in verse 20 and they ask the question, and as Jesus often does, he doesn't answer the question. <laughs> the question is asked in verse 20, and in verse 21, he goes off and does things. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Then he answers these messengers. So Jesus is going to appeal to his acts, and Jesus is going to appeal to the Old Testament promises of the Messiah. John had doubts. Jesus has answers. Jesus' answer is not, take a leap of faith, John. Just believe. Belief doesn't do anything, right? It may make for great songs. I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the sky. Notice none of you jumped off the gym roof this week because you believe you can fly. The only time I believe I can fly is at the airport, and sometimes that's with trepidation. Okay? So, what, what, are we, what does Jesus do? Jesus points to evidence. Jesus points to evidence. He's not asking us to take a leap of faith. Faith is not blind. It's not a leap of faith. Jonathan Morrow has a fantastic definition of faith. He says it this way. Faith is active trust in what you have good reason to believe is true. Faith is active trust in what you have good reason to believe is true. See, we're, we're not the, the kind of people that just have faith. We have faith in a person. We have faith in historical accuracy. We have faith in things that we may not have seen with our eyes, right? But have been faithfully transmitted to us. How do any of you born after 1945 know that World War II happened? Because you read about it? Well, I can read a lot of things that didn't happen. Don't go on the internet. We believe it because it's been transmitted. Those photos could have been faked. I mean, we, we live in a world where people work for decades to deny that the Holocaust happened. This is not out of the ordinary, actually. What, what God asks us for is faith and active trust in what we have good reason to believe is true. So, Jesus heals many. He gives sight to the blind. And he answers in verse 22, Hey guys, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. Just tell him what you saw. Tell him what you heard. Tell him what you saw me do. Tell him what you heard me teach. Jesus is giving rock-solid evidence. What did you guys see? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And interesting one to end with, the poor have good news preached to them. Well, if we go back in the book of Luke, we see this is exactly what we should expect. Jesus in chapter 4 explained that Isaiah 61.1, which defines several of these things happening when the Messiah comes, he's doing them. Jesus points to what he's done, and he points to the Old Testament as saying, this is what the Messiah was going to do. I'm doing them equals. He's using this evidence 
to help point. Yes, I know you're having doubts, John, but look what I'm doing. Look what I'm teaching. Undoubtedly, it's hard in prison for the wrong reasons to have a positive outlook on life. But Jesus gives him evidence, lots of lines of evidence. And at the end, he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I don't think this is a jab at John. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me, John. Get some faith. I think that, that Jesus is being very kind here and just reminding, hey, there's a blessing for those of you that stick around. Persevere. The word here is scandalizo. It means to, to, to a stumbling block. There's a blessing for people who aren't scandalized by Jesus and by being associated with him. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, of the power of salvation. Oswald Chambers says this about doubt. Doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he is thinking. Now, doubt is not a good thing in and of itself. I'm not, I'm not saying everybody doubt. Right now, just doubt. Let's be a bunch of, the church of doubters. But doubt, it, by the way, we should not pummel each other for doubting. I can't believe you doubt. What would your parents say? I don't need to do that. Let's think about it. Let's talk about it. Let's give evidence. One other author said, doubt is a matter of the mind. We cannot understand what God is doing or why he is doing it. Unbelief is a matter of the will. We refuse to believe God's word and obey. Doubt is a matter of the mind. Just trying to wrap our mind around this. Unbelief is a matter of the will, refusing to believe God's word and obey. So any doubters here this morning? You're welcome. You're welcome here. If any of us could raise our hand and say we never had any doubts, I wouldn't believe you. Because we're human. This is hard to believe. So, what am I saying? Well, if there's anybody here this morning that is doubting, this is the invitation. Not just believe. The invitation is investigate. Think. Use your mind. Read the book. Come to the conclusions based on the evidence that is offered. Not on some of Jesus' bumbling followers. Look at Jesus before you look at his followers. Jesus isn't afraid of the search for the truth. He's not afraid of that. He said he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And listen, this is what we proclaim. If Jesus isn't who he said he was, if he didn't come as a man to be Emmanuel, God with us, if he didn't teach these things that we read, if he didn't die on a Roman cross for our sins, if he didn't rise from the dead, then one of his greatest followers, the Apostle Paul, who had doubts at times, said that Jesus' followers are of all people most to be pitied. Throwing away our money and our time and our service. If this is not true, that's what we're clinging to. If this is not true, then we are of most of all people to be pitied. Now watch what Jesus does in the next section, verse 24. Point number two in your notes, Jesus is coming. Kingdom is a huge upgrade. Jesus' coming kingdom is a huge upgrade. Jesus here questions the crowd. John's messengers go back to Machaerus, tell John what, I, what you saw, what you heard. And now Jesus turns to the people that were there. 
Now, I don't know, maybe Jesus' followers are like, wait a second, John is doubting? What's going on here? So Jesus turns to the crowd and he reminds them because almost all of them were followers of John before they were followers of Jesus. Remember that? All Judea is going out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And then Jesus comes. So, so many of them had followed John first. So Jesus turns to the crowds and he says in verse 24, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? He's reminding them of why they did what they did. Now, um, oops, forgot about that one. Let's go here. This is the wilderness. And in the end, you can kind of see the Jordan River and there's a hint of green over there. You don't make this trip just kind of like, oh, hey, let's go check this out. All right, that's not a fun trip. You know what we're going to do today, kids? We're going to go through the wilderness for 15 miles to go see a guy who's dressed in camel's hair, eats locusts and honey, and is preaching. Woo! What a great weekend. Jesus is reminding them, why did you brave these roads to go out here and hear this guy? Why'd you go out there? What'd you see, a, a reed shaken by the wind? Here are some reeds in the land of Israel that grow in the Sea of Galilee and on the Jordan River. Those are nice. They're tall. They're a little skinny. They're a lot skinny. The wind shakes those. They move. They're not solid. They don't have much of a foundation. We've experienced some strong winds the last week. Things that are thin and don't have a strong foundation don't stay up. They, they fall down. Jesus is telling, him, telling them, what did you go out there to see? What just happened? Jeremiah, you fixed that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> A man dressed in soft clothing? Did you go out to see a guy dressed up nice? Sounds like Santa Claus. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. You don't, you don't go to the wilderness to visit a wealthy royalty, which is ironic because John the Baptist is now in prison at a fortress palace by the royal family. What then did you go out to see, Jesus says? He's, he's constantly saying this. A prophet? Is that why you went? Ah, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Do you see how he's, he's building up John? He's not attacking John. He's not accusing John. He's saying, remember this guy? He's strong. He's a preacher. He's a prophet. In fact, the Old Testament wrote about this. So Jesus is not just going to go to the Old Testament to build himself up. He is to build his evidence. But he's also going to go to the Old Testament and say, Hey, John's this guy. John, that, John is from Malachi 3, the last book written before 400 years of silence. This is that guy. God promised him hundreds of years ago. And so Jesus defended and commended John. In fact, look at what it says in verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, which is everybody... None is greater than John. So, hold on a minute. Abraham? Moses? David? John's greater than all those guys? That's what Jesus is saying here. That is a huge claim. The Jews reverenced those men. Those are the top three. Those are the Hall of Famers. 
Abraham, Moses, David. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Wow. What a statement. Jesus is saying that John is the bridge. John is the bridge from the old covenant, from the old uh, ways to the new covenant, the new kingdom. Jesus came in promising a kingdom. And so what Jesus says is, listen, this happened and it was good, but what's coming is even better. It's a huge upgrade. The best of the old can't compare to the least of the new. And let me tell you, believer in Christ, that should be a huge encouragement. You outrank John the Baptist. You do. You outrank John the Baptist. Why? Because you're a part of the inbreaking kingdom of God. You're a part of the new covenant, the new and better way. When we participate with Jesus, we are part of something really big. We are part of something new and lasting. One commentator said, those who live in the age of fulfillment are privileged beyond even the greatest of those who lived in the age of preparation. Another commentator said, it is greater to participate in the kingdom than merely to announce it. John has a great privilege to be the last of the Old Testament prophets as he announces the kingdom that's coming. And yet what he announces supersedes him. Jesus is promising a huge upgrade. This is a big deal for us. And it's also a big deal for those who did not recognize it. Verses 29 and 30, Luke has a little parenthetical statement, which he adds. This is not in the parallel in Matthew. Luke is writing this, again, why? So that Theophilus and his readers would have certainty. So Luke includes this where Matthew doesn't. Verse 29. When all the people heard this, I love the statement, and the tax collectors too, <laughs> separate class, scum of the earth, right? We've seen Levi called from the tax collecting booth to follow Jesus. The scribes and Pharisees can't hardly handle this. It just outrages them because a tax collector? When they heard this, they declared God just. They literally, they justified God. What does that mean? Okay, God. All right. You got it. Are they allowing God something? No. We don't have that power. What they're doing is they're agreeing with God. They're recognizing his rightness. To declare God just is to declare him right. To declare him righteous. To say, yes, mm, yep, that's it. That is it. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus. And how do they know this? Well, they've been baptized with the baptism of John. They had heard the call to repent, and they had acted on it. They had gone out and repented because they knew they were sinners. They knew they were lost. And they needed what John said was coming. But watch this, verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. <whistles> rejected. That is a, an active turning away. Rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Not having been baptized by him. They showed it in not responding to John's message. We're not going to go out there. We don't need to go out there. We're fine the way we are. That's the initial hardness to Jesus' message. If you're fine the way you are, if you're healthy, you don't need a physician. Thanks, but no thanks. And in thinking they were healthy, they missed that they were deathly ill. 
Have you rejected the purpose of God for yourself? Wow. Have you accepted the purpose of God for yourself? You see, the problem is this, this is not like a pagan problem. This is a religious person problem. This is a church person problem. This is a good person problem. The people that should have known, they should have seen this because they knew the Old Testament like the back of their hand. They were precisely the ones who should have identified Jesus first. They should have heard his words and seen his acts and gone, I recognize that guy. He's from Isaiah. He's from Malachi. He's from Ezekiel. He's from the Psalms. He's the son of David. But listen, they didn't just miss it. They rejected him. It didn't go over their head. It went in their ears, into their head, and they rejected it. No, he can't be. This is not the one. So this is a warning to all of us. How many of you grew up in the church? Not all of us, but many of us. Okay, this is your problem. This is my problem. Be sure your head knowledge will find you out. Because it won't transform your life if it just stays in your head. People can figure out pretty quickly whether or not um, you've internalized the lessons or if you just like hearing the sound of your own voice, you know, spitting out cool facts. Well, I know when the Assyrians came and attacked the Northern Empire. Good. I mean, that's nice. You should know that. But, wow, it's life-transforming. Whew. This is arrogance and self-seeking pride. I know the facts. Great. You need to know the facts. What do the facts mean? What do the facts mean? This reminds me of the old cliche that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Right? We know those people. Wow, you know a lot and you're really annoying. And I don't want to be around you. Because you're really arrogant. Now listen, I am not denigrating knowing facts. I like facts. But the problem with knowledge is that it puffs up. And so knowledge needs to be processed from our head, not just staying here, but into our heart, and then coming out in the activity of our hands. Jesus' brother James would later write, faith without works is dead. Okay, assent. I believe that. Nothing shows that I do. It's dead. James also said, I will show you my faith by my works. I will show you my faith by my works. Don't miss the Messiah this Christmas because of your rigid and probably man-made expectations. Don't miss the Messiah. Lastly, an application point for us is don't miss how Jesus defends and commends his colleague, his cousin, his co-laborer, his messenger. We can apply this to our family. We can apply this to our church family. Don't bag on your family, friends, boss, co-workers, church leaders, coaches, teammates, everyone. But listen, don't bag on your team, right? Don't cut out the legs from under your coach. Let's not do that. Rather, notice, Jesus, when, when, when probably we would have been like, John, come on, man. Jesus builds him up. Jesus lifts him up. Jesus backs him up. Jesus even says, hey, that guy who you just heard is doubting, before he jumps to conclusions, he's the greatest man born of woman. (laughs) 
Wow. What do your coworkers know about Village Bible Church from what you say? Do they primarily know the people you don't like? Or the things you don't like? Or the songs you don't like? Or the preacher you don't like? What do they know about Village Bible Church from what you say? From your priorities? What do they know about Jesus from how you spend your money? From what you seem to be obsessed with? What do they know? Let's not bash each other. Let's not bash each other when we have doubts. Let's love one another. Let's build one another up. Some of you guys were baptized a few weeks ago. And one of the things that Pastor Ron talks about is how baptism is a, is a kind of a big marker in your spiritual journey. And when you're doubting, you can go, man, I was baptized. What was that about? Think back to what led to your decision to follow Jesus in obedience by being baptized. What you said in the waters up here. That's a reminder of what you were doing. Well, point number three is Jesus ends this portion of his talk with the people. Jesus' new kingdom requires aligning our expectations. Jesus' new kingdom requires aligning our expectations. Uh, One of the commentators called this last section the parable of the brats. (laughs) Okay, and you'll see why. Jesus wants to figure out how to compare the people of this generation and what are they like. Not like everybody from the generation. In fact, it sounds a whole lot like what Moses and the Lord said about the generation in the wilderness that rejected God. It sounds a whole lot like that, like it may be referencing that. Jesus is like, how can I compare the people who, not the doubters, the disbelievers? What are they like? Well, here's what they're like. They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. And when I first read this two weeks ago, I was like, uh, what does that mean? And then I read the commentators and I said, what does that still mean? So if we look at this, Jesus is using the the picture of children sitting in the marketplace. It's busy. Think of uh, the first few scenes from Aladdin or something. It's a bustling marketplace. Some of you have been to Jerusalem and walked through the streets. Ah, smells and people and things and it's busy. And there's children sitting there because they live there and they're sitting in the marketplace and they're yelling at each other. We played the flute for you. You did not dance. Right? So we sing, come on, let's go. What are you doing? Dance. Or we sang a dirge. You did not uh, weep. And then this, for John the Baptist is coming eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. Jesus said, listen, John came and he lived out in the wilderness. He crunched on locusts and honey and he wore camel's hair. (laughs) Oh man, what a terrible choice. I mean, not just fashion, but like comfort, right? That's awful. He's living out in the middle of nowhere, and he seems to be kind of an angry dude, right? The axe is laid to the tree. Repent. So this guy shows up, and you say, that guy's got a demon. He lives out, by the way, the wilderness was um, believed to be populated by demons. So if you lived out in the wilderness, you were congregating with demons, right? So he's got a demon, okay? Then the Son of Man comes, verse 34, and Jesus is the opposite. Jesus goes to parties, Jesus, Jesus enjoys eating and drinking. And they say to him, a glutton and a drunkard. Whoa, hey. <laughs> okay. So what's interesting here is the glutton and a drunkard is the exact phrase from Deuteronomy 21, verses 20 and 21, which prescribes how to deal with rebellious children in the Old Testament. And the picture of the rebellious son in that passage is one who just hates his parents, will not uh, submit to them. And so 
um, his parents have to go and testify against their own son, and they call him a glutton and a drunkard. And then the whole community gathers and stones him to death. Kids, aren't you glad we live in the new covenant? A glutton and a drunkard. Jesus, you're the glutton and the drunkard from Deuteronomy 21. That may be the hint of that. You're a glutton and a drunkard. You deserve death. Now, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying the leaders are acting like children. They, they thought John would be like this, and he wasn't, so they didn't like that. And they thought Jesus was supposed to be like this, and he wasn't, so they didn't like that. So you can't please him anyway. The question is, um, who's playing the flute and who's not dancing? And, and so some of the thoughts are that John and Jesus just aren't playing the game they were expected to play along to. It's almost like John and Jesus are the ones out in the street and the leaders are going, dance to this tune. And John and Jesus don't dance to that tune. And so they're condemned. And not only that, but they won't do either one. <laughs> they won't do either tune. Or th- 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 it could also mean that John is singing the dirge, right? He's the funeral and Jesus is playing the flute, and the leaders are not responding. Either way, what's pointed out here is that these are just bratty kids. By the way, that's not a good, good comparison, right? You adults are like bratty kids in the marketplace. That's immediately a bad reference. Okay? And so what's happening is that John and Jesus, though opposite in their styles, united in their message, do not meet the expectations of the Jewish leaders, so they're both rejected. And Jesus ends this by saying, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Let it play out. Wisdom is justified by her children. We'll see who is actually wise. We'll see who's following whom and who makes the right decision. And so this leads us just to ask, what happens when God doesn't meet our expectations? Has God not met your expectations for your life? Has God allowed unexpected things into your life? Have you been rejected because of Jesus? Have you been ridiculed because of Jesus? Listen, reset, realign your expectations. Find them in the scriptures and set your expectations from there and you won't be disappointed. You will have trouble, but Jesus came to give peace in times of trouble. Listen, the expectation was that Jesus would free them from the Romans. Jesus did far more than that. He came to conquer Satan, sin, and death. And eventually, by the way, anyone had problems with the Roman Empire this week? No, because they're gone. (laughs) Anybody have any problems with Satan, sin, and death this week? Still around. Jesus came to conquer. So, may this Christmas season, may we be reminded that Jesus is the promised one. Because his actions fulfilled prophecy. And as we're inundated, oh man, with shopping and coupons and sales and traveling and family get-togethers, let's not forget that that's great and fun, but Jesus' coming kingdom is a huge upgrade. This is just a taste. A taste of what's to come. And then last, let's remember, remember, remember that Jesus' new kingdom requires aligning our expectations and then let's live accordingly. Raise your expectations to what God reveals in Scripture and then believe what God is going to do in your life and in our lives. Father, thank you for this time this morning.
May we have greater expectations of what you're going to do. May our expectations be based not on our feelings or our experiences, but on the reliable word of God. May we base our lives on the strong foundation of the Bible, that we would trust it, we would trust you in what you've spoken to us. Lord, help us to trust Jesus. May anyone here this morning who has doubts just feel encouraged to, to pursue, investigate, to look into this word. And Lord, that you would give a certain salvation to those who are searching. They might find that you are reliable and that you love us. God, help us to live accordingly in this new kingdom which you are bringing forward. And may we look forward to the day when the kingdom finally fully arrives and we live in that kingdom freed from Satan and sin and death. And when we, when we walk with Jesus face to face, when we see the scars on his hands and in his side and we bow down and forever we'll sing, holy, holy, holy. Lord, in this Christmas season, help us not to forget what Jesus came to do what he has done, and what he's going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.